Let me extend a very warm welcome to today's uh, guest, uh, our presenter, uh, Martin Piatowski, on this Polish event, Europe's growth uh, champion, will its success continue? Um, Martin is writing a book on this issue where he takes a historical perspective, but also a future perspective on lessons to be learned. And he's very kindly agreed today to come and give us a preview uh, of this of this book, and to, just to give you interesting, we have invited a, a very distinguished panel to discuss this. Um, we have Paweł Sameki, who is a member of uh, the Polish Central Bank, uh, Dan Buska, who is for working for Unicredit Research, and finally our very own uh, Alex Lehman, who is here a, a research fellow at Bruegel. We're going to take uh, 20 minutes for a presentation, uh, just an initial presentation. Then I would like to ask our panelists to give their initial thoughts on what they heard. We will get reactions, but also I would like to involve our audience, you, so to uh, try and kick off the discussion. So, Martin, without further ado, uh, let me give you the floor, please. Sure. Sure. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Bonjour, dzień dobry. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure, honor, honor and privilege uh, to be here with you today. Can everyone actually hear me well? Does it work well? All right. Um, I appreciate the opportunity of sharing with you some of the insights, key messages of the book that I'm writing for Oxford University Press about something remarkable that has happened over the last 25 years, which is a true a Hollywood story of a country that has moved from rags to riches within 25 years. A country that has moved from being poor to being rich in, in a quarter of a century after being underdeveloped, backward, in the periphery of the European economic and global affairs for almost 1,000 years. Without being too controversial, it is as if an economic alcoholic suddenly, after 1,000 years of, of drinking, suddenly got up and won a marathon. So what I'm trying to explain in the book is how come a country that Poland, that like many of his neighbors in Eastern Europe, has always been a step two or sometimes even three steps behind Western Europe in at least economic development, what were the conditions and factors that suddenly made it flourish, boom, in the last 25 years and to become the European, the global growth champion? At the last European Cup, Poland has done well, but we lost out to the future champions. So in football, we have not made it, but in economic growth, Poland has become the European growth champion. And I want to take this story of moving from poor to being rich, from having an income of $7,000 in 1929, in 1989, to $27,000 today. And I want to present the lessons learned and insights for a lot of countries that are still, actually the majority of countries around the world, that are still underdeveloped, that are still poor, that would love to make the same difficult path, to take the path from being poor to being rich where Poland is today. A number of my key messages. There was a reason that Poland and Eastern Europe has not developed for 1,000 years. And the argument I'm making is that we have created societies which I call, after Achimoglu, Robinson, and others, an extractive society. A society that was ruled by the few for the benefit of the few. A society that did not let the vast majority of population to develop, to flourish, to pursue happiness, to become rich. 
Paradoxically, and I hope we'll have discussion about it, it was only for all of the horrendous social costs that communism has inflicted on Poland and Eastern Europe, and for all the an economic inefficiency that ended up in an economic collapse in 1989, communism had one, at least one positive legacy. It opened up the society. It made it socially inclusive. It promoted the broad-based society that has never existed in most of Eastern Europe for most of its history. So despite the system being inefficient and ending up in a bankruptcy, at the same time it created the very conditions that were critical for Poland to finally make it and register a post-1989 growth miracle. And finally what I want to say, so what do we do now? Or rather, how come that you've been so good and I'll provide evidence of a Polish success how come suddenly we, at least some of people, think that the country is going backwards? If this has been so great, why is it so bad? So I'll try to explain it and also offer my own view, a set of policy prescriptions of what I believe Poland would need to adapt to ensure that this convergence with Western Europe continues. And finally, I'll talk about Europe. What should Europe do? Should we punish Poland? Should we engage them? And what should we do ourselves as Europeans to ensure that these countries like Poland and others in Central and Eastern Europe continue to grow and continue their success story? All right. I won't bore you with methodology, but what I adopt in the book is a methodology of an institutional framework developed by Achimoglu, Robinson, and Johnson. Some of you might have read the book, Why Nations Fail. So this is what I do. But then, and this is a framework that explains how institutions, such as democracy, free press, secure property rights, level playing field, open business entry, how these institutions are the ultimate drivers of, of economic growth. And what I do, and that's, inshallah, will be my original contribution to economic theory, I extend that framework of Achimoglu and try to focus on one part that's been missing in the literature so far, which is how do you move from one equilibrium, an extractive society where only the elites benefit from growth, to an inclusive society where everyone benefits, where there's a democracy and where the growth lifts all boats. And what I argue that moving from one equilibrium to another is extremely difficult and it almost never happens on its own that for most of the mankind history, when you look the through the literature, countries that actually made it needed a big external shock to move from extractive society to an inclusive society. And Poland and Eastern Europe been an example of that shock, which was largely communism. Now, anyone recognizes that map? All Poles here? Yes, we do. That's the supposed golden age uh, in 1600s where Poland was its, it, at its apogee, at least in terms of geographical expansion. It then stretched from the Baltic Sea in the north to the Black Sea in the south. But is it really true? Has it been really a golden age? I love one of the quotes from Napoleon who said that history is a set of lies that everyone agreed upon. And Poles are no different in idealizing their past because when you actually look beyond the facade, you get this chart, which shows that even in the best times in 16th century of what we get to read in our own textbooks, 
the level of income, as much as we economists can calculate it going back into the past, the, the, at, the, at its apogee, the level of income of an average Pole was barely half of what it was in Western Europe. And it was the case for all the other countries in the region, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, even Czechs. We are all way behind. Obviously, at that time, the differences in absolute incomes were insignificant. It was as if comparing Burkina Faso to Chad today. Everyone was poor. The quality of life in Poland was lower than in Afghanistan today. We are all poor. We are all trying to survive beyond being 30 years old. But it was never true, at least in economic terms, that, that Poland and all of the countries in the region have experienced golden age. And one of the reasons is, and that's why I adopt this institutional framework, is that Poland has never developed an efficient state, has never developed institutions that would undergird, underpin, support economic growth. If you want any country to grow, you need a minimum of public support. You need secure property rights, you need courts, you need infrastructure, you need security, you need all the all, uh, regulations that will decide what are the terms on which we are competing. But in order to have a functioning state, you have to have taxes that would finance these public services. So what this chart is showing, that Poland throughout all of its history until it became a failed state, because it actually disappeared from the map of Europe, for all of its history, Poland among all these other countries in terms of tax revenue has been always at the very bottom. If I were in America, I would say that Poland, for all of its history up until 1795, was a Tea Party dream. No one paid any taxes. And it ended up with the collapse of a country because there was simply no public administration and no revenue that could support the state. And quite surprisingly, I think to a lot of Poles and many others, that state of affairs lasted until 1939. If you look at the level of tax revenue of the central budget, even in 1939, that's the dot there, Poland is below the regression line. In other words, even despite its low level of income, it was getting very little tax revenue. The state could not provide services because it was an extractive society where no one wanted to pay taxes. So the, so the state was too weak to actually provide the type of services that are needed for economic growth to occur. That's why I move into communism. I know there are various views about that system. Octavio La Paz, I will probably paraphrase him, he said, communism has provided the wrong answers, but it might have provided the right questions. I don't know if you agree, there are various views, but there's one thing that, that communism has changed, despite all of the social costs, and I'm the last one that would deny them despite all of this economic inefficiency that ended up with Poland going bankrupt in 1982, like Greece today, and stopping to service its foreign debt. For all of this time, one thing that communism did, it is provided a chance, an opening, for all the peasants, all the proletariat, all the underclass of Poland that has never had a chance to develop. And I could give you a lot of evidence for why the, why the society have been, has been ex extractive, but I can give you just one of, uh, two of them. One is on, on the tremendous change in structure of the economy. Poland and most of other communist countries were those 
where the share of agriculture in total employment has declined the most, more than anywhere else in Southern Europe and in Western Europe. So it was a huge structural change where peasants for the first time ever in millions were leaving villages to get jobs in industry. And also in education. Poland provided education, tertiary education, university education, to, the, to a large part of the society. In fact, not much different than France. Poland is in the middle, France is on the right. By 1960 and 70, Poland has been educated much more of university graduates than ever before. Perhaps one piece of evidence, in 1939, Poland had about 35 million population, today is 38. Poland today has 1.6 million students. In 1939, it had 50,000 students. Gives you an idea of how different the society has been. Now, fast forwarding, after these 1,000 years of always being a step behind, something fundamental happened. This little fish moved from one part to another part, made a big, big jump that has never happened before. Poland has moved from this super competitive agriculture that some, in, some people in Western press keep on reproducing this picture. That's old. That's not true anymore. It moved from this environmentally friendly industry and from this rampant consumption that's in this picture. And after 25 years, we ended up with this, a picture of Warsaw, which is one of the economic hubs of Central Europe and has a level of income higher than some Western European cities. So it's been a tremendous totally historically unprecedented shift from a country that could not get many things right for a long time to unbelievable success, which I'm showing in these charts, where Poland has now, has now grown without interruptions for 25 years. It is just about to break the world record in the, in the time, in how many years a country has grown without a recession. Japan is now the sole leader, and if Poland continues to grow by the end of the decade, it will have grown more than 30 years and will be number one. Why a, grow, a European growth champion? That's what this chart shows. If you, look, if you take GDP per capita in 1989 and put it as 100, Poland's GDP more than doubled in the period, coming ahead of everyone else in the region all the Slovakias, Estonias, Czech Republics, and others. And Eurozone is also here. So Eurozone's income increased by about 50% in that period. And a global growth champion, which I think many of you would find surprising. If you look at the, at the development of GDP per capita since 1995, Poland has actually beaten all the Asian tigers. It has beaten South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore. But since we are in Brussels, there's one thing I want to emphasize. Among all these fastest growing economies, these are small. So if you look at large, Poland would be number one. But if you look at all these economies, most of them are in Europe. Europe, the European Union, has been the ultimate force of good, which made all of these poor countries experience their miracles and to grow at the rate that they have never experienced before. And something that is today on vogue, and for a good reason, which is inequality. And then we need to discuss what exactly happened. Poland here is the only country where 100% of the society has increased its income since 89 faster than in the West. 
which is the definition of an inclusive society. None of other countries, if you believe this EBR, EBRD data, has achieved it. You, you may want to ask, so why, why do we have these problems then? If everyone has benefited, if everyone's income has increased, even the bottom top, top percent of Poles have significantly increased their incomes in the last quarter of a century. And I could go on and on about this success because it's in many, many ways unprecedented and sui generis. Poland has grown without oil, gas, or any natural resources. It's not Qatar. It has grown without dead steroids. A lot of countries grow because they borrow. But Poland did it, and it still has one of the lowest level of debts, private and public, in the European Union and worldwide. It was also part of what you would say slow-growing Europe. If Poland was a neighbor to China, it would probably be growing at 8%. And last but not least, how many countries do you really know that made it rich while being a democracy? Taiwan, Singapore, Korea, not really. A large part of their catching up time was experienced during something that we would not call a democracy. So in many ways, it is a new phenomenon. There was very few countries in the history ever that have made it while being a robust democracy with so many governments changing places. And at the end of the day, so after 500 years of economic decline and stagnation, by 2015, Poland has reached the highest level of relative income compared to Western Europe ever. The reason why I call it Poland's new golden age. We have never, we as Poles have never been closer to the quality of life and level of incomes in the West, at least as far as we can calculate back. 80,000 years ago, when we were all leaving Ethiopia, we were all equal. So at that time, you can argue at absurdum that we are golden age then. But if you believe that we look at modern history, there has never been a better time. Quality of life and satisfaction increased. More than 80% of Poles, if you ask them about their private lives, they will say, I'm happy. But somewhat schizophrenically, if you ask them about the country situation, only 20% say that it's going in the right way. Perhaps someone can explain. I asked my wife, she couldn't tell. She usually tells me whether I'm right or wrong, but she, she couldn't explain the schizophrenia between the people that have never been happier and the fact that believe that country is going to the dogs. Well-being, that's, that's something that we have, we have borrowed from European values. So in terms of overall quality of life, Poland has much higher quality of life than what the level of income would suggest. In fact, an average Pole has better life than an average South Korean, despite the fact that South Koreans are actually significantly richer. All right, let me move on. The fundamental questions you would want to ask me, why? What were the drivers? What were the sources? Why did it happen? And most of the time, I work for the World Bank. What we do, we focus on the proximate sources of growth, which is, which is here. We say this country privatized, this country kept macroeconomic stability, they increased interest rate by 0.25 or decreased zero, by 0.25, but it really does not explain why current countries become rich. These are just proximate causes, which I document in the book, and I have the whole discussion about the transition, what has gone right, what has gone wrong, what were the sources, the proximate sources, the symptoms, the visible sources of, of that success. But what I think is, is really much more interesting is not looking at the tip of an iceberg, but everything beneath. Because that fundamentally decides what a country become rich, and there's very few of them worldwide. 
not more than 30, 40 countries overall. This really decides what a country makes it, not what you can see in newspapers. So that's why I focus on, on bigger sources, on institutions, on culture, on geography, on ideology, on luck, on individuals, because that's what really matters in the long term. Because the fundamental question is, why, if you know what to do, some countries are not doing the right policies? If we know how to improve business environment, which is actually intellectually trivial, why countries are not doing it? If we know that you can improve business registration, you can import software from New Zealand of Singapore and have a company register in 15 minutes tomorrow, why is it that countries are not doing it? Why? So what Poland has, has done, and all of the other countries in Eastern Europe, and that's what I argue is the fundamental source of that success, is that never in the history of mankind have so many countries in such little time adopted such great institutions. Because within a decade, Poland and the rest of Eastern Europe has adopted all of the best mobile applications, all of the institutions that Western Europe has worked on for 500 years. And as part of the EU accession, all of these, our countries have adopted these institutions sometimes, and some people here in the audience remember, we even were, we are Google translating legislation just to make sure that we are on time and we will not miss the train. Most other countries in the world don't do that. They do not adopt the institutions that have already proven themselves to be successful. Poland did, and you can see it in this chart, in every single category of institution, voice and accountability, regulatory quality, and rule of law, Poland is way above peers in upper middle income, by a mile. And it's all thanks to the EU. And then the question is, why? Why did Czechs, Poles, Hungarians, Romanians want to adopt these institutions? Why did they, didn't they want to be like Russia or Ukraine, go the third way? or find some other institutions, or develop something on their own. And this is what I focus on trying to explain what was different. And what was different, for instance, that has never happened before, was that we had an open, broad-based society where everyone was legal and there was no class, and still today, no one asks you questions, where are you from, unless you mean geography. That has never been the case. Try to go back into to 1938, they would ask you what class are you and you would immediately tell that you are a peasant or, 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 or a laborer or a worker or whoever and your chances would be immediately different. And one of the things that mattered is Europe. It was also unique that Europe was open to accepting Eastern Europe. In the past, Western Europe would send tanks. They would do tanks, not highways. They would, they would be involved in occupation, not in integration. So that's been a, also a fundamental change. So a couple of things needed to happen at the same time for this growth miracle to happen. And a couple of minutes, and you, if you're still, everyone's still with me? Good, happy to hear. I guess that's the most sexy part of that. So what happens next? We know all this success, fine, but why? Now, I, I sit in Boston and Washington, and then when you read about Poland, it's truly black and white without having much of a sympathy for, for the current government, I still think that in many ways is too journalistic, simplified and exaggerated. And the question that was asked in the title was, will Poland's success continue? 
My answer is, short of a ultimate disaster, Poland will continue to converge. But most likely at a slower pace, and it will affect the long-term path, but it will continue to converge. And that also happens to, since it's not only my view, that also to, happens to be the view of the IMF. We just published a report uh, a week ago, which projects these 3% growth rates. And the interesting is where, how, how far can we go? And ask this, this Trumpian question, can we be like Spain again? Because if you look in the past, for most of its history, the level of income in Poland was almost like Spain. It was actually equal up until 1960. Only then Spain flourished and Poland just stopped in its tracks. But then after, after the transition, it started to catch up at an unprecedented pace. And if you can argue that there is some institutional cultural steady state towards countries all converge, then there's a certain sort of source of optimism. If we agree we have something in common with Spaniards, a peripheral location, religion, culture, and a number of other areas, then, then you could argue, and it's hard to falsify, that this convergence might also be happening. There's a lot of strengths, and this has not gone away before, because of the new government. High quality of education, improving infrastructure, doing business that I have worked on in Poland for, for, for six years, where Poland moved from the 75th position in the ranking to the 24th last year. These things are not going away. And most of all, what's not going away is all of these young people in the audience. Poland have, has now the most competitive young generation ever. Most educated, most westernized, most open, most technologically savvy, most ethical. And you can see it everywhere here. You can see it in business. You can see it in the European Commission, in administration. You can also see it in sports, if you recognize this guy. We just had one lonely Boniek in the past, but now we have a lot of these guys. And that's not a coincidence. In a sense, it's a reflection of this new generation of Poles that, that, that we all represent here in the audience that are no different than average Western Europeans. Coming closer to my conclusion. What are the risks? What can go wrong? I mean, after all, these are all projections, and it's not like we economists can really project anything. Just look at the global crisis or Brexit or anything else. So it all can go wrong. Yes, it can. One thing is population aging. There's institution. Let me just give you a couple of arguments. On population aging, this is a real issue. The age structure of Poland will move from something that looks like a fat lady to something that looks like a kebab. And it will happen pretty soon, by 2050. So there will be a fundamental break on long-term economic growth. Without fixing this age structure, without increasing fertility, without opening up the labor markets to immigration, Poland will not be able to converge in the a, in a long term. Now on the government. And that's obviously my Harvard view, not my World Bank view. So I have to make this disclaimer. There are some good things and bad things, and I don't think they always fully recognize when you read newspapers. Um, some of the things have... You can call the, the, the government populist, but unlike, for instance, what President Trump might be doing in the future, the, the government has actually is in the process of making the country more inclusive. The 500 plus, the tax credit, has almost eliminated extreme poverty, has reduced inequality, is just about to increase fertility. So these are the things that are truly inclusive. 
I mean, most of us here are the part of what would, you would identify yourself with a global liberal elite. And we've been all talking for decades about how we need to make the growth more equal and inclusive. But we have done no nothing about it. We, it's all talk. So the paradox is that these guys have talked and they have implemented these, uh, these measures that are actually making the society more equal, more cohesive. And a number of other things that I believe are not always fully recognized, like the fact that because of the EU's trade jacket, the regulations that have been imposed on Poland, and for a good reason, the government is sticking to them, like the 3% budget deficit rule. Find me a populist government in the world that would keep to a 3% budget deficit rule. It's difficult. But does not undermine the risks of what has gone bad, particularly on institutions. And I think in a discussion, we'll, we'll expand on what exactly I, uh, we mean by all of, all of this that happened. Before I finish, one more important, this very fundamental thing about the culture. I think there's an inherent tension between the institutions that Poland in Eastern Europe has adopted and culture values that we still have. For 1,000 years, the two parts of the continent have been sort of separate from one another. So you cannot really expect that just by adopting institutions, the next day they will work in the same way because they are put in a different soil. When you look at the data of, for all transition economies in Central Europe, in terms of the support for economic intervention and uh, democracy authoritarianism, all of these transition economies are, are far away from Western Europe and they will not change overnight. We cannot be naive about it. This culture will not change, particularly of the older generations. And one source of optimism is that when you look at younger generations, all of you here, they're already much different. Okay, coming closer to, to what I'm proposing, I, I call this loftily the Warsaw Consensus. There was a Washington Consensus, Beijing Consensus, and why not have a Washington, uh, Warsaw Consensus, which is a list of 10 policy prescriptions instruments. And since it's a consensus, that don't be surprised that it looks a bit trivial. It's supposed to look trivial because it's a consensus. It's something that we all agree on. But it's much different than what the Washington Consensus was really about. That, that focus on institutions, focuses on well-being, and, and a lot of other factors that are critical for countries like Poland to continue to grow. And last but not least, so what can we do in Europe? I would say keep Poland engaged. engaged. Don't punish Poland. I think it will be counterproductive in all kinds of ways. Keep it engaged as if you had an adolescent son who's just going through puberty. Do you want to kick him out from the house or do you want to keep him at the dinner table? So keep Poland engaged, but at the same time, make sure that Europe is actually becoming more attractive. Let's move from words to actions. Let's, let's make Europe, Europe, European identity more, more tangible. Let it not be only open borders and no, no fees for roaming. Let's, let's tax multinationals and let's introduce a, a little payment every month or every year to every single child or adolescent in, in in Europe with a little blue flag that shows that it's European money. Multiply Erasmus and others. And coming to my last slide, and to sum it all up. Poland and Eastern Europe has not developed for 1,000 years. And the reason has been that it's been an extractive society where the few ruled for the benefit of the few. And it was only after 1945, despite all of the other horrendous costs of socialism, that we have built an open society which, when 89 came, where communists collapsed, 
were able to, for the first time, flourish, develop, make money, and become rich. I think Poland is like Jamaican sprinters. It's so super competitive in so many ways. Quality of education, low labor costs, high productivity, improving infrastructure, that is difficult to imagine that the Zosain Bolt will suddenly stop running. Unless something fundamental truly hits the runner and puts him off track. It's probable, but probably not the baseline scenario. What we can do in the long term, since I'm not convinced that Poland will be able to fully catch up with the West, let's focus on what's really important, strengthen institutions, Western values, and the Warsaw Consensus. And last but not least, let's work on Europe. Let's make sure that we have that we maintain Europe as the most prosperous, humane, civilized continent on Earth. And I think the future is bright. I think time is on our side. And we'll all make it. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I would like to start up the discussion. Paula, can you give us your first reflections on, on what has been said? Can you hear me? Yes. Well, indeed, uh, it's been an, a very impressive panorama of, of Poland's economic history and, and the economic situation of today. And it's hard to disagree with uh, most of observations and findings which have been presented. Uh, but I will try to pick up a few, say, observations and, and try to comment on, on them with some complementary remarks. Well, as to the, uh, as to the success of transition. It's interesting that you have not used the word transition, but <laughs> I will use the word transition. Transition from the command economy and communist economy to, to, to the, say, market economy. So the success is indeed uh, very well represented by this comparison to Spain. I myself <laughs> used to use Spain as a comparator. Indeed, Poland in around 1950, shortly after the war, was at equal uh, GDP per capita with Spain. After four decades of communism and command economy, we were at 40% of, of GDP per capita of Spain. Now, after 25 plus years of transition, we are at 77% of GDP uh, of, same, so, of Spain. So this confirms the success of Poland's uh, economic transition and transformation. What were the sources? Uh, well, I agree that I would, again, highlight at least four elements of success. First, entrepreneurship, uh, genuine private sector development in Poland. Uh, it, it was not a mass privatization on a scale which was observed in other Central European countries, but uh, it was a, a genuine privatization which have not uh, produced oligarchs. So indeed, uh, entrepreneurship combined with privatization produced uh, very good results. Uh, you have also um, highlighted uh, integration with the EU. I, I agree that there was a, a kind of political unity of elites on the left, on, in the center, on, on the right-hand side. All of these elites and all parties were, say, unified uh, there was a universal support for EU integration. And thanks to this process of accession, indeed the institution building uh, produced a lot of good results in the past. Although, in my view, uh, you are a bit exaggerating saying that 
Poland, it, it was a simple success of importing institutions. Uh, this way we cannot say, I mean, uh, it's like, you know, in a sub-Saharan African country, you can import all, all of the law from a modern Western country, but it doesn't mean that the law will be enforced. The same goes for institutions. Uh, institutions should be filled with a kind of people's mentality, and this is something which is still not, maybe not fully present in the Polish uh, case. And then, of course, after accession, it was modernization of the economy supported by, by the financial tra transfers. Another two elements, that this is foreign direct investments, which, which is a factor indeed helping modernize uh, the Polish economy, and education. But in the case of education, I would like to, uh, to, to, to say two things. One, it is true that we have great successes uh, when we look at the secondary education. And it's true that we have great success in quantitative terms as regards tertiary education. But when we look at the tertiary education from the point of view of quality, then uh, it is, I would say that it, the, the quality is, is a bit more doubtful. And secondly, uh, despite of those huge numbers, uh, there is a mismatch between different say, vocations and specializations on the labor market and demand for it. So here, in, in the case of tertiary education, we should be a bit more, uh, say, uh, humble. Mm. Then, uh, what went wrong? I can't point at anything which was totally wrong, but I think that we have at least a few points that uh, should be said. Uh, I have a few points that should be said. Although, as you pointed in your presentation after the EBRD, although every percentile of population benefited from, um, from convergence, there is a perception of rising inequality in the society. A perception, uh, which is probably based on, on the fact that neither regional disparities nor income inequalities has not, have not diminished over the last 15, 20 years. And there is another explanation provided by Bogusław Grabowski, one of the economists in Poland, who, who, says, who speaks of the so-called intergenerational conflict. He says that uh, people at my age, my generation, uh, benefits, or we have benefited from, from a transition because we can compare Poland of today with Poland under communism, and the psychological effect is, is, is very positive. While for the people in their 20s or 30s, for my, my children, they don't care about communism because they don't have those experiences and uh, memories. That's why they rather tend to compare themselves with people from uh, towns, cities in Western Europe, which they visit as tourists. And that's why they feel the gap between <coughs> expectations, aspirations, and, uh, and, and, and the reality of their economic life in Poland, which is, again, incomes are growing, that's true. But uh, Szczecin or Białystok is not uh, uh, Milan or uh, Munich. And what, what has gone wrong still, it is public services. Uh, I think that in many cases, healthcare and social policies 
social, well, some aspects of social policy should be, should, should be and could be improved. And uh, my final uh, comments on the future, uh, on kind of challenges. In the short run, I think that the main challenge is still, maybe it's not a challenge, it is kind of a risk connected with the creation or, or the insufficient creation of fiscal bumpers for the future. I agree that it is good that we are under 3% deficit, but it, if we have 2.9 and the economic situation, although indeed there is a recovery, <laughs> but uh, we have the eighth consecutive year of recovery in the United States. This is the second longest period of recovery in the States. If things go wrong in the States, then we will feel it and we will, we should have some, something to react with. And we do not have something to react with if we run fiscal deficit very close to the threshold of, uh, of 3%. Well, in the medium and long run, uh, the real main challenge for me is, to, is how to move from, from the current cost competitiveness, from competitiveness based on, real, on, on relatively low uh, wages and low costs to, to the one based on innovation and research and development, which you rightly pointed at some slides. That's, that's really a difficult task and uh, a challenge. And I think that uh, realistically looking at the future, uh, we should uh, get used to, to a decrease in the rate of catching up with the West, uh, with a kind of a secular stagnation or new normal uh, present in the Western world. Um, it will be difficult to achieve uh, three percentage points uh, above the rate of growth of Western Europe, as it was the case in uh, shortly after our accession to the EU. It is unlikely in the future. That's why probably uh, um, our, our, the process of convergence will be not as fast as it, as it was a few years ago. But all in all, uh, I believe that we sh should look uh, optimistically to the future. Why? Because if I, re if I may refer to, to uh, Bruegel's uh, Andres Sapir classification of European countries or models of socioeconomic development in Europe, Poland belong, belongs to, to the northern mo model of, of economic um, development in, in, in Europe. We are not Anglo-Saxon model, that's true, but we are closer to Germany, to Austria, to Finland than to the south of Europe. So um, it is illustrated by, by someone who said that uh, the Polish young people who emigrated to the UK, they brought the ethics of hard work, <laughs> which was probably difficult to imagine under the communism. Uh, but, but this is the case now. So that's why I believe that uh, decent uh, ethics of work combined with, uh, uh, with mar the market economy should, should produce good results in the future, and we should be optimistic about it. Thank, Thank you. you. Martin, do you mind if we give the floor to the other two and then maybe uh, react at the, uh, at the end? Uh, Dan, would you like to take the floor? Sure. Thank you very much for inviting me. I've got eight charts for you just to try to frame Poland in a European um, way. And I will start with two of Martin's questions. One was, why did Poland and Central Europe 
want to do these reforms? And the simple question is because they looked at Europe and they liked what they saw. And they wanted to have exactly the same thing. And they had a blueprint, a framework to follow, and they did that. And the second question was, why are people happy and the society unhappy? Because as we know from Kahneman and Tversky, we're very good at judging each other, comparing to the others, but not very good at judging the absolute values. So when people ask us, are you happy on your own? You look at yourself and you think, I've never been better, actually. If they ask you about the society, you look at the others and exactly like Mr. Samesky said, you're going to think about inequality. And this transformation these economists have been through have brought a divide between rural and urban areas. The biggest regional discrepancies in Europe are in our region. The largest of them are actually in Slovakia, one of the tiniest countries in the region where Bratislava is the fifth wealthiest region in Europe, and the rest of the country is among of the poorest. And it's the same thing when we look at capital cities versus the countryside in each one of the new members. So my charts first, what I would like to show you first, it's a river of blood showing how countries try to escape what we call the middle income trap. And by every count, there have been 12 to 15 countries that managed to escape this middle-income trap that has many definitions. Some of them are 10 to $15,000 per capita. Usually, it's GDP per capita. Some people define it as a percent of uh, US uh, GDP, 46 to 55. Poland is there, or they're about to escape this middle-income trap. And we're very sure it will escape it. But if you look at other models, there are countries that have been in the middle-income trap for ages. Look at Russia, for example, always trying to escape it and then going into another crisis. Look at Chile, Brazil, or Turkey. Again, countries that didn't manage to do it. Another way of looking at convergence is how do these countries fare compared to the rest of the EU? And here Poland started in the upper middle of the pack, and it's still in the upper middle of the pack. So it's not necessarily an extraordinary story. It's in line with the rest of the region, and it shows how important the EU was for all these countries. So how do these countries grow from here on? I'll try to look at each one of the factors, um, namely capital and labor. And I will start with institutions and reforms. We always thought that joining the EU will mean more reforms. Well, actually, it's not true. There are very few countries that continued reforming after joining the EU. Poland is luckily one of them. So are the Baltics. But if you look at others, they made an effort until they joined the EU, and then they just stopped because they reached the club. It reminds us a bit of Greece in the 80s. So there, are, there need to be more efforts to reform in order for these countries to be better functioning from here on. Talking about capital, everyone's talking about EU funds and how important they've been. And for some countries, they've been more important than for others, especially those countries like Hungary and Poland that managed to attract a lot of EU funds. And it's very likely that this will disappear in the future. And the question is, what will be the impact on growth? In our measure, it's between 0.2 and 0.6 percentage points of potential growth per year, with Poland being actually at the lower end of the range and Hungary being at the higher one. So all of them will be affected. How do they manage to replace these EU funds with other investment? 
And that's a point I would like to make for Poland because we still have Poland at the highest um, potential growth in the region, around 3%. If you look at investment in 2016, it was a lost year. One, because there weren't much in EU funds, but also private investment were extremely, extremely weak. And the reason for that was uncertainty. The government started the year by talking about overhauling the whole tax system and then gave up all these measures around the year. By the end of the year, there was no big change to the tax system, but also no investment. So if this continues, if this uncertainty continues, we might end up scaling down potential growth for Poland quite significantly because there's no private investment at the moment, or anyway, they're very weak compared to how fast the economy is growing. Another point I would try to make, reverting to, to the inequality, is how wages developed across emerging markets since the crisis. If you look tucked there between Romania and Serbia is China, which started with a very small wage in 2008. It was still a fraction of wages in Central Europe in 2008, and now it is higher than in Serbia, Russia, or Bulgaria, and in two years, it's going to be higher than in Romania. So we had an equalizing of wages, meaning wages in our region growing slower than in other regions. And the reason for that was exporters wanted to be competitive. We pulled out of the crisis by being integrated in what the IMF calls the German supply chain. And we benefited from the supply chain. As Mr. Samesky said, the question is, how are we going to improve from there, graduate from the supply chain, and do our own products. We still don't have an answer on that. And the answer should be tied to two things. One is the quantity of labor. And as you can see, activity rates are very low. We're talking about very tight labor markets in Central Europe right now. Well, actually, we're not working much compared to other countries in Europe. With the exception of Slovakia and the Czech Republic and maybe the Baltics, we're all below the average in participation. So that could be an answer. And the second answer is the quality of education. And Mr. Samesky again alluded to it. I would like you to look at the left-hand side chart. So this is on the horizontal axis, you've got the quality of primary education, so basically the start. On the vertical axis, you've got, I think, the best measure of quality of education period, which is a question asked to companies. How well do people finishing school adapt to your needs. And as you can see, there is a move downward in most countries. And this signifies two things. One, maybe the education system is not good enough. Two, economies become much more complex. We don't need people now just to manufacture small pieces, you know, small car parts. We need them to do something more. And the education system in these countries does not reply to that. Poland is in a better situation than much, many of these countries, maybe together with the Czech Republic in the best situation. If you look at countries like Hungary or Slovakia or Romania, the situation is quite dramatic. The education system does not adapt to what the economy requires. Regardless of the fact that we've got so many students, most of them go into economics and uh, and law, how many of you have graduated from uh, polytechnics? One. <laughs> Thank you very much. Economies are useless. Great. Well, economies are less productive than the others, I think. 
And finally, how did governments react to this wave of populism by increasing spending? Is this the way forward? And you mentioned the 500 plus. The day the 500 plus scheme was launched in Poland, a large car company launched um, an offer for a very nice luxury car for 499 zloty per month. So we now call this program the Lexus Generation. Oops, I, saw that I said the name, but um, okay. Spending money, giving money directly to people has not had um, any impact on demographics. What usually women say is that they should know they can stay at home and return to their work safely, and two, they need good daycare for toddlers and small children. That should be the focus of any government that wants to increase demographics. Handing them money out will probably just lead, for most of them, to upgrading your car at, work, at home. So um, having all this in mind, I do think these are the developed markets of emerging markets, like uh, investors like to call them. Um, many investors in emerging markets always tell us, oh, yeah, yeah, first world problems, like uh, what happened now to that uh, newspaper or, you know, in other countries, they remove governments overnight. It's true, we're past that. But still, if we do want to go towards Europe, maybe we should focus more on what we call liberal values, because we are democracies, but as you know, some of the countries in the region are big proponents of illiberal democracies. Do we really want that? Is that an answer for the future? My guess is not. I also believe that these countries have a way of re-equilibrating themselves. Usually they go back. If they do a mistake, they usually go back and mend it. And I would finish with this optimistic idea. I think in the end, they will go the right way. Okay, then, thank you very much. Antonelli, Alex, can we have your thoughts on this sure, and before sure. we open up the floor? Um, thank you. So I guess it uh, falls to the panel to be um, a little more sanguine than the uh, introductory. Um, so I think Martin is right. This is a unique experience of uh, you know, what the World Bank used to call a growth spurt, a sustained uh, period of uh, <coughs> income conversions. But I think we need to be clear, it's, it's unique in uh, many ways uh, through the integration within the EU from, from institutions, but also from access to a common uh, labor, uh, capital, and, and trading market. Yeah? Um, so the convergence um, is uh, still ongoing, but I think now the institutional uh, context is, is that much more complex, and um, I'm, I'm not sure that the institutional uh, support within Poland is still uh, uh, truly, truly uh, fostering, that, fostering that integration. Yeah? Um, I think it's important to have this discussion here in Brussels uh, in that uh, Europe needs that uh, success, needs to show that enlargement has worked, needs to show that common policies can be effective. And Poland is by far and away the most uh, systemic country in uh, the uh, emerging Europe region. And it, uh, you know, it is a model for, for other countries uh, elsewhere in, in Europe. Um, so I think uh, the 
concept of the middle income trap was mentioned. Um, when I worked... Check your mic. Can you check your mic? Uh, I think it's on here. Yeah, can you hear me all right? Yeah, okay. So, um, I think the microeconomics of that um, are, are worth reflecting on. What uh, Poland needs to move, uh, not just into a higher per capita income, but into a, a new growth phase, as the new government has set out, uh, is a very different uh, model of growth that's no longer uh, based simply on, on the um, uh, adoption of uh, existing technologies, but uh, growth model that's increasingly based on innovation, but also on, on structural change that, that generates um, new firms uh, and that reallocates resources further away from, from the traditional sector. Now, um, so here what, uh, you know, the development institutions would say that uh, it is essential to have a domestic savings pool. Um, now on that, um, the uh, previous governments for 12 years made an effort to build up uh, domestic uh, pension funds and they're about to be nationalized. Yeah? So it is not just doing away with the key institutional bedrock of investment, um, it is also a question to the concept of financial property rights. Um, you would certainly expect there to be a, a process of um, investment going into riskier projects. Um, so you would expect to see, um, you know, as you do in the Asian emerging markets, a local um, class of private equity and venture capital investors. Um, you would uh, see a, a little bit of a semblance of a local capital market. Um, now, Poland has been served well by the banks, but the local markets are still vastly underdeveloped. Um, and you would expect to see a um, sustainable energy policy, and we are still far away from that. Um, you know, Poland has uh, vastly outdated uh, infrastructure in energy generation, and um, obviously the newer renewable energy concepts are questioned. There are many uh, tensions with the European counterparts on the common energy policy. Um, I think that is a concern given that the basic uh, engineering, the basic context of uh, Polish energy provision is uh, vulnerable to a policy uh, change, a policy backlash um, that could uh, put a lot of the, the energy supplies in question. Um, and then lastly, maybe um, there has to be a, a strategy for coping with, with aging. Um, <coughs> Martin showed the uh, demographic decline, um, but really even under the previous a somewhat more reform-oriented government, uh, the, the policies on broader inclusion, broader participation um, have been quite weak. And um, I think now uh, one must have a, a fiscal strategy also that, that demonstrates a pension concept that goes beyond the next uh, time frame of the uh, Stability and Growth Pact monitoring. Um, so there are quite a few open questions, and um, now 
we have obviously alongside other um, governments in, in Europe and the US, we have a much more um, open-minded, shall we say, concept of, of a uh, local development concept. I think some of the hallmarks will be a, a reassertion of control over the, the state-owned enterprises, but also a extension of state influence in the, into the financial sector. Um, a number of foreign banks are withdrawing and uh, are being uh, taken over by local or state-affiliated institutions. Um, the um, uh, tensions over the political um, compact with the EU and the rule of law uh, investigation by the EU um, are clearly worries for foreign investors as well as for the for the um, functioning of, of the judiciary and for the uh, certainty of, of property rights. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think the jury is still out whether this growth spurt can continue and um, I agree with Marcin that uh, the policy from here in Brussels ought to be continue to engage demonstrate the successes enlargement has brought and the, the benefits enlargement has brought to the whole of the population. Um, but be clear about uh, what uh, membership in this common market requires in terms of adherence to policy principles, adherence to a common energy policy, um, a signal a, a that the Structural funds are not an entitlement for the uh, some of the European countries, and that ultimately there will need to be a a life without an ongoing transfer in the order of two or three percent of GDP uh, towards Poland alongside others, and that local investment sources need to be found. So um, we will all follow Poland very closely, and I think it will be hugely instructive for the success of the European project and uh, policies that are engineered here in, in Brussels, and I'm sure we all wish Poland well. But so this is a discussion we will continue to have. Thanks very much, Alex. That was very, very useful. And Marcin, what I suggest is, would you like to pick two or three things to uh, comment on? And then I would like to... Uh, don't comment on everything, because I would sure. like also to involve the... <laughs> there's been a lot that, that, uh, that came out. So uh, sure. maybe very briefly, so that we can also engage our, our audience. I think the audience has been great, and all these people listening to us for more than an hour now. So sure, just exactly. And controversial, because I think a lot of stuff that everyone of the distinguished panelists has mentioned is, is much to agree with. A couple of things uh, that I might disagree with. Uh, I think actually it's a myth that if there was, wouldn't be communism, that Poland would automatic, automatically become as rich as Spain, Portugal, and, the, and, and others. There's a number of factors that I would pinpoint from the fact that it all depends on what kind of borders we would have. We would still have a border with the Soviet Union. We, are, we would still be an extractive society that somehow has never made it in 1,000 years. So I'm not 100% sure that suddenly in 1945 we would truly make it, particularly if we were a democracy. Let's not forget that Spain made it because they had a dictatorship until late 1970s. Portugal had a dictatorship with Salazar until 1974, and so did Greeks. So I think it's it's um, we just take it as automatic, but I think it would be it would be difficult for all kinds of reasons, including the lack of domestic savings, expensive uh, import of foreign savings, and the like. I think it's far from from uh, being um, a shoe in that 
that Poland would not, uh, would not lag behind as it has in the past. Now, on middle income trap, I love my dear friend here, but I think it's just a media fact. I, I think it just not, does not exist. My colleague at the banks, at the World Bank, have developed the concept. It's sexy, it sells well. Every newspaper wants to talk about the middle income trap, but it's not, it does not really exist. It's just a hypothesis that, that, that just looks great on every chart. Whenever a country leaves the trap, people change the definition of what the trap is. It used to be $10,000, then it's 15, then it's US, then it's whatever. So I think it just keeps on adjusting. The bottom line for Poland is that Poland has gone way beyond the middle trap already. However, you calculate it, at $27,000 of income, it is nowhere close to any middle income trap. It is, it is by far a, a poorer high income country. So I think it's, it's high time we actually move to another sexy uh, notion. I, I wish I could develop this, you know, hold on. And the third Average one. Of the hmm? Average of the uh, but it doesn't say that well. Average already <laughs> kills the idea. But let's work on it to have some ideas from the audience. Third quick point on 500, the tax credit. I disagree that it's, it's uh, the redistribution. I think that, that it's in investment and cohesion. Uh, I think the, the, the question we should all ask ourselves is, if UK have adopted a tax credit three years ago, would we still have Brexit? If... Obama had a tax credit or a similar system for Americans, would we have Trump? Because I think uh, often we are penny wise and pun foolish. We save half a percent of GDP on the lack of distribution and then we get someone who will, who will cost us trillion of dollars of the income that we'll ever earn. And I think it's a big problem with economists that we have often this extremely narrow view of what really matters and ultimately sometimes it's useful to pay 1% of GDP for something that lets you avoid scenarios that are, that are potentially disastrous. And to sum up, I think every one of the panelists agreed with, with the main argument which is or the main question, which is whether Poland's success will continue. I think Poland is in this comfortable position that we're not discussing whether it, the convergence will continue, we're discussing at what pace. And it's a totally different question. More than 100 countries around the world would love to have that problem. Not whether they will converge, but at what speed. So I think, we, I, I think Poland will converge. The big question is whether it will converge at, at the pace of growth of 3.5% or 2.5%. I think there's a lot of a lot of reasons to worry that it will decline soon, particularly after 2020 to closer to 2.5. This is clearly something that we, could, uh, we need to debate more on. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's then uh, try and collect some questions from the audience. We have uh, questions here at the front. We'll collect two or three questions and then take it away. Please. Uh, I was fascinated by this presentation, but uh, as always, you could uh, or try to find new elements or uh, differences in uh, how you should interpret. And the question that comes to my mind, when you have looked very deep into the past, and you, for example, compare it with Spain, Spain for a while has been uh, uh, imperial power, mm -hmm. has been uh, having uh, colonies, uh, but also it has developed within Europe and then has paid a cost which were a bit unexpected. The same happened also in Polish history. Mm -hmm. When Europe was developing, it has helped to develop, but in differently, in a structure that were totally different. For example, we petrified a rural system that delivered plenty of uh, food to developing Western Europe. 
The question here is not only that uh, Poland is developing, but in which areas, how it is developed, how it's integrated uh, with the remaining Europe. It could have also, uh, I think it has developed much more qualitatively better than I could expect. It has developed, uh, in a, even we do not have uh, yet uh, many products which are originally developed, and, uh, but still we have, the, and that's a question, why it has happened that we have not been uh, developing as a margin of uh, 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 Europe, but rather integrated better with Europe. And secondly, on a democracy and, uh, uh, and the instability of a government. Certain governments, uh, or more in Poland, I have been working in 10 governments, so it was already quite a, a changeable system. However, all the governments, and Pavel has mentioned this, had, a, had been captured by the desire to join European Union. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have met a number of people coming from the West, and they said, we were mistaken by looking at instability of a government because policies were much more stable. So even it was democratic, changeable government, the policies were, were fixed because they were not so, demo, uh, parliamentarians were very often had no, no choice. They had to adopt the laws that they would prefer to have adopt different, but they had to adopt laws that were compatible with the EU. So it's a bit of, uh, you know, okay. there was a, a, a small democracy uh, a bit uh, qualified, uh, in a sense. Thank you. There's a question here. Uh. Thank you. Um, Richard Middleton from, from AFME. Um, thanks for all the panelists' contributions. Really, really interesting. I was struck by the comment about the history. So from 1989, I think, Martin, you were saying, you established the conditions under which you could have growth, but in an inclusive um, kind of way. And then you're asking about, will permanent success continue? And I'm just kind of wondering, uh, put, put the question, be, sort of be careful what you wish for, because a number of the other countries who've got the higher growth rates have also got these big perceptions of, of inequality. So I wonder whether there's a, a, more, a more complex measure of success of a country which combines its GDP and, you know, is it sustainable, does it have sustainable energy policy, what are the perceptions about inequality, I don't know whether economists have sort of thought about that, but I'm wondering whether Poland really wants to be, you know, 100% or higher of so-called more developed economies, you know, will that bring more problems? Thank you. And then a question here. Uh, we'll come back to that. Uh, Kurt Geisert from Backbone Consulting uh, in Stuttgart. I have a question for Mr. Piatkowski. You showed a chart with uh, good news and with bad news. And amongst bad news was bad EU narrative, but uh, uh, in the same moment uh, you explained uh, in detail that the biggest economic progress was made in the last 20 years. This means accession and pre-accession. Why is this? <laughs> Thank you. Martin, would you like to respond and then we'll sure. have another round. Uh, Any more questions? Ladies? There will, be, there will be, but we can, we can have a sure, second round. So just quickly then, thank you. Um, I love questions on, on history. I think, uh, to quote Henry Kissinger, history to nations is what character is to people. If we economists do not understand where these countries come from, I think we'll just end up with doing some equations and, and charts that at the end of the day, we're gonna be, keep on getting struck by disasters that we never predicted. 
Um, on Spain, I, Spain and Poland, I could go on and on, uh, including before the war, we are also a small empire, we have colonized <laughs> others, but in many ways we are uncannily similar. We, we had in our apogee, even though it was actually not that great, but we, we have declined even more than Spain did, and we have in, in, in ways where brothers in periphery, if you call brothers in arms, brothers in periphery, up until the 1960s, um, and we're only now catching up. So in a sense, historically speaking, there's a source of optimism. Uh, there's no reason why Poland would not be as rich as Spain. I think, and I could even put some money and invite whoever wants to take the bet. I can invite someone for a good dinner in Brussels at some point. I'm convinced that Poland will get to about 80% of the Western European level of income. I think we're just way too competitive to, not to get there. But I'm worried whether we'll ever become a core. The same way that Spain has not really become the European core, also as reflected in the crisis. I think this is totally different types of skills that country needs to become the core rather than this successful periphery. And I think we don't have these skills. It's another debate of what is exactly is this kind of intangibles that it's hard to put a finger on. Um, on policy consensus, fully agree. I called it the social consensus. For the first time ever, we the whole broad segments of society all wanted to be Western. One of the reasons why Poland had stronger social consensus than elsewhere was because of Gomułka, because of the fact that after 1956, Poland had its own path to communism, which allowed Poland to become much more liberal than any other communist country next to Hungary, which allowed us to build an alternative elites and Poles that have actually allowed to go to West so whenever, the, whenever we engineered the communist collapse, there were all these people that knew what the West is. In, in, in Romania or Bulgaria, or not to mention Ukraine or the Soviet Union, you never seen the West. So the, the fact to create social consensus was def, definitely much more difficult. Um, and on the negative EU rhetoric, I wish I knew the answer. I, I don't know, it's way beyond my competence. The truth is that Poles are still the most pro-EU in the EU. More than 80% of Poles are, are very strongly European. Why the government is using the rhetoric that is divisive, that, that undermines what really made this country a success? My bottom line is that Poland and Eastern Europe has only developed when it was westernizing. It was never developing when it was easternizing. And I think it's been proven time and again over the last 1,000 years of the country history since we became Christian, which was a Western import. Actually, anything that has ever happened in terms of building strong institutions was important from the West. So I don't understand for someone who has a, a sense of history, how could ever anyone use this rhetoric? But you know, this is democracy. Governments change one way or the other. And as long as polls remain pro-EU, things can change. Uh, would your panel like to comment on anything, Powell? Uh, Not at this stage. <laughs> okay. Okay. So one more round of questions. So there was a question here. Yeah. Just here. Oh yeah. Hello. Uh, thanks a lot for a great discussion. I've got a question of few, perhaps. I'm wondering whether before 2008 and 10 there was a similar uh, discussion about uh, Europe's growth champions, Spain and Ireland and others. Uh, my question is uh, namely about the monetary policy. As we, we, we can look at uh, uh, the mo interest rate in Poland, they, they were quite high before we joined, or at least a few years before we joined, and they started dropping significantly. Uh, around 2004, they were 5%. Now, 
similar situation happened in all these countries, Spain, Ireland, etc., etc. Monetary policy basically created malinvestment, which exploded some years ago. My question is, do you see any similarities that basically that uh, Polish growth is fueled by the cheap uh, monetary or cheap liquidity, and uh, basically that it may come to an abrupt end? Thank you. Thank you. There was a question there. There, the there. Thank you very much. My name is Burkhard Ober. I work for Allianz here in Brussels. Um, I would completely share uh, Marcin's uh, analysis of the past, but uh, not his outlook for the future. There I would rather tend to be with Alexander. Why? Because, um, first of all, what Alexander mentioned on the privatization of uh, the Polish pension system, that will have a negative impact influence on investments. So I think here you have probably been a bit too optimistic. The second thing for the future where I would like to see probably more, and more analysis is the interference and the interaction of various measures. If you have a government that is weakening the institutions and we see the weakening in the press, we see the weakening uh, uh, television, we see the weakening especially of the judicial system won't you see more Lewandowski's and Miroslav Klose's that will simply leave the country? So I would like to see a, a study of how many talented young Poland's actually leave because they don't like the situation uh, the way it is presented in a country that is completely divided in East and West, the West being completely pro-European and close to Germany, and the East falling back into a very nationalistic Catholicism of the 19th century, including okay. Warsaw, which is very astonishing. We have one more question here. here. Okay. Christoph Stanger from the Permrep of Germany. I have a general question. On one of your slides, you told us that um, all in all, Poles uh, feel quite satisfied with the country. There's, there's dissatisfaction. How do you explain then the mass immigration starting in 2000, 2001 to Britain and to Ireland? As far as I know, there have been around one million people living to Britain and to, to Ireland for, I would say, better life. How do you explain it? Uh, uh, and even though you told us there have been a huge, uh, uh, well, uh, amount of or rise uh, of um, uh, wages and, and uh, things like that. And uh, the same uh, is uh, for Germany. Uh, uh, one of the biggest groups uh, coming as new residents to Germany, it's not the Syrian or Turkish, it's, it's uh, Poles, in, in mm -hmm. fact. So how do you explain that? And uh, how do you see the future for those living in Britain or Ireland after, well, Britain, the Brexit, do you expect them to come back to Poland? And how, what, would we be, what would be the influence or impact on Polish economy, on Polish society? Thank you. Thank you. There are two questions at the back there. I don't think we can call it today. Thank you. Alexander Szymaszko, European Parliament. Uh, I'm going to follow up on the last two questions, actually, on migration and the youth people, uh, or the youth. And uh, I'm going to ask for reasons. But in your uh, opinion, was the mass migration after 2004 more of a safety valve that actually uh, helped to decrease the unemployment and to elevate the mood in the country, or rather as a hindrance for the long-term growth, especially considering the demographics problems? And in that context, is it right for the Polish government to focus on the um, freedom of movement as the main Brexit issue? 
uh, or rather this is a chance for us actually to get some young people in uh, reproductory age back to Poland. Thank you. There's a question there at the back, the gentleman. Konrad Niklewicz, Martin Center. Um, a question or rather comment to Mr. Piankowski. I challenge your positive view on fiscal transfers such as 500 plus program. If it's so beneficial, why wouldn't we triple that or quadruple that if it's so good for the economy? Mm -hmm. And secondly, I think you've underestimated the, the consequences of the pension age reform, uh, which will effectively make people going for a pension at, uh, yeah, at the age of 50. Martin, I think we have a lot of questions. Can I just add one more, I think, mm -hmm. before you... <laughs> sure. Because I think there is, there's something that, uh, in the very last slide, you talked about risks, and you said that short of a big accident, we're going to be on the same path. What do you mean by that? What type of accident would be sufficient to reverse situations? 2016 has been a year of accidents. Are they sufficient, or, or, um, mm -hmm. or uh, are they not sufficient? And what type of accidents would you like to see? Thank you. Good question, yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone, for, for all of this. Let me be brief. On cheap liquidity, I don't worry. I think Poland has one of the most stable macroeconomic positions. There are no imbalances within or outside the country. The foreign debt is relatively low. The, the, the domestic debt is low, both public and private. Um, and I don't think in Poland is actually one of the very few countries that still has a positive real interest rate. So it's actually a statistical outlier in having, a, if you will, a normal monetary policy. So I'm not worried. On pension funds, I have my account with Allianz. Thank you very much. But, uh, but I don't think it really matters. I think obviously matters in, in this way that pension funds are critical. But I'm not sure that this is what will decide uh, the future of the country. It matters at the margin. Obviously, the big question is whether the savings that are taken away from the private system, which I'm, I agree is, is, a, is a bad decision. The big question is macroeconomically speaking and, and, and looking from a large perspective, whether we'll be able to find another vehicles, including through third pillar alliance uh, accounts, where, where Poles will actually want to voluntarily save. That is a big question mark, but it can happen. So as much as I can agree that there's been a, 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 a move in the wrong direction, I don't think this is macroeconomically important, and, and much will depend on what happens next and whether Poles will save through, through other means. On immigration, I always hear this a lot, and it's a great question, obviously, but to me, it's a one-on-one -on -one economics. Um, what is your name again? Christoph. Christoph. If I now offered you to come with me to, New to Washington, D.C., and triple your wage, would you go or not? <laughs> okay, but I assume that a lot of people would go regardless of how patriotic they feel about back home. So my point is, it is unthinkable that a country after 1,000 years of being backward, suddenly we're expecting that all these people would stay home even though, even though the, 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 the difference in income is so substantial. The same way that Americans move from Missouri to New York or from godforsaken whatever state, I don't want to be disrespectful, <laughs> To, to places where there are jobs, there's really no different. That's exactly why we created the European Union, so that these people can move back and forth. And again, Poles have worked hard for 1,000 years to be poor. We started, I remember my parents making $30, $30 a month, $30 a month in 1989. So how do you expect that, what, in 20 years we're going to offset 1,000 years of backwardness? No, honestly, it, it is... These people will be moving. The question is what will happen later, and I think Brexit, in a narrow sense, will help a lot. 
the fact that Poles has a demographic problem, the fact that we have never had lower unemployment than we have now, the fact is that real wages sudden, finally uh, grow at a fast pace. I think it's a, only a matter of time where a lot of these polls will be coming back. Brexit will have help at the margin because they will come back with their jobs, which is even a win-win scenario, at least for Poland. I'm not sure about the UK. Um, on the fourth one, uh, I also answered the question on the safety valve. So to me, whatever the, the gentleman there, I think it was a safety valve, uh, uh, basic economics. Any country that has this, look at China. China has been growing at 8% for these last 20 years, and there's been also large immigration. And if you open the borders to America today, half of the Chinese would move tomorrow. So it's really not the growth rate. What matters is the levels. And if you have open borders, there's just no way you can stop someone from moving where he can triple his wage in another place. On 500 plus uh, from you, I mean, if you, obviously, if you, Reduce this at a, a, a reduction ad absurdum. Everything obviously doesn't make sense, but I think this 500 is still fiscally doable. Um, I am not saying that this is the first choice. I think it's ineffective in some ways. I would have wanted the money to be spent on kindergartens and crashes and others. There's evidence that it works better, but politics and, and countries' history is really not about third best choices. I mean, the perfect should not be enemy of what's good. I think this 1%, 1.2%, it is res still responsible. We can talk about the details. Um, eventually, this is a structural expenditure. And I don't think any government in the future will be able to, to get rid of it. So we'll have to find a way of how structurally we can finance this. And then we'll, you know, whoever wins the elections, if it's a new government, I think everyone will have a very close look at whether the program has brought the benefits that it was supposed to. But again, it's still, uh, I agree with the IMF that it can be financed at least until the, the, until the next elections, which I, I think was the, the point. And on the risks, again, I think Poland is like this Usain Bolt that is printing 100 meters. Start, you know, really try to stop him. It's difficult. You really have to go headlong and, and move him away. So what I'm trying to say that something fundamentally disastrous would need to happen for the country to stop converging. What this disaster would be? EU disintegration. I think this is by far the, the low probability, high impact um, thing that can happen. If, because of all the things you know, elections and whatever, if we see that there is a growing risk of EU disintegrating, that's gonna be the largest risk and the largest impact there ever is. Again, the convergence will continue because maybe a bit slower because of this, maybe fiscally it could have been better, but at the end of the day, if the EU disintegrates, Poland and the whole of Eastern Europe is back to where it's always been, which is in the dark peripheral part of the subcontinent, which would, would not ever leave on its own. Any final thoughts? Yeah, yeah, can I make four short comments to the questions? First of all, for monetary policy, I think uh, low rates were very important for the deleveraging in the private sector, but if the private sector starts deleveraging at this kind of rates, there will be a financial risk uh, further down the line. On the pension system, this is the second quickest aging country in Europe. Um, in the end, this intertemporal transfer made sense in the second pillar of the pension system, and how much I would love to see the third uh, pillar developing. I think this, again, is a risk mostly for people outside urban areas who are already uh, worse off than the rest of them. 
On migration, we do have evidence that in Poland, migration is reversing. So it's one of the countries that gets people back. At the same time, removing this uh, migration to Europe at some point, if it happens, that will probably lead to tensions because of youth unemployment. And I think in the end, a labor market reform that will focus on education and infrastructure will be extremely important for Poland going forward. And finally, with the 500 plus and generally the increase in non-discretionary spending at the height of the business cycle, I think this just lowers potential growth in the future because the potential to invest more from the state side will be much smaller. Thank you, and Powell, any final thoughts, Alex? I mean, no, no, I don't want to take time with... Okay. No, that's fine. That's fine. Thank you all sure. very much for, for uh, thank you very much, Martin, for a wonderful no, thank presentation you and your coming. comments. Appreciate your time. Thank, thank you. you.